it's good to be back. Uh, Rooftop has a close place in my heart, my wife's heart, because this is a church here in St. Louis that has the best job of obeying God's command to be fruitful and multiplying. And in fact, when uh, Angela, we only have three kids, um, I was hoping that some of the influence of the church might have rubbed off on my wife because I wanted to have as many as the Zilkies have, uh, but that never panned out. So, um, But it is good to be with you this morning, and today we're going to be looking at, uh, the sermon title here is Beware of What You Know, uh, not because knowledge in and of itself is bad or that there is bad knowledge out there to be had, but more because of something called proportional punishment. And that's a fancy way of pretty much saying that God holds us accountable based off of what we know and whether or not we follow through with that. And this makes intuitive sense for most of us, right? If, if uh, one of our children does something that we, told, uh, that we told them in advance not to do, in other words, they knew that they shouldn't do it, but they did it anyway, then the punishment is usually higher than someone who didn't know that that wasn't something you were supposed to do, right? And so we understand that on a human level, but God also meets out punishment, but also reward, but we're focusing more on the punishment side this morning from Luke 12, that there is proportional punishment based off of whether or not we follow through with the things that we know versus those of us who honestly we don't know that that's what God wanted us to do. So we're going to take a look at this passage, and there's a couple of reasons why um, I think we struggle with either proportional punishment or reward, and I'll get a little bit into that this morning. But let's go ahead and pray really quickly for the Holy Spirit to guide us. Lord Jesus, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful this morning for witnessing that word coming to action through baptism. We are joyful, and we know that you are joyful as well, not only in Elijah and Abigail's commitment to you, but to all of your people here in this room uh, that want to know how we can better follow you. We're so dependent on your Holy Spirit to direct us, to convict us, to help truth free us from our sins, so we pray for that this morning. In your son's name, amen. So let's go ahead and take a look at the passage this morning out of Luke 12. This is 42 to 48. So follow along with me on the screen. The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded, 
And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. So at face value, this passage is pretty straightforward. It isn't very complicated and it isn't difficult to understand. So just to break it down, uh, the master obviously is God. We are the managers. And what the master does is he goes away on a trip. So like Matt, he's gone. He's entrusting the pulpit to me this morning for me to do a good job, right? In the same way, God and Jesus, when he went back to heaven, he entrusted on his believers to do God's will. We are managers. And what is our job but to be faithful managers? And how does God define faithfulness? Caring for the other servants, giving them the food that they need at the allotted time. And what is a faithless manager? Jesus says this faithless manager is beating the other servant. Not only is he not feeding them or giving them the nourishment that they need or the tools that they need, but he is actually beating them, abusing them, and also taking the master's wine and getting drunk off of it. So Jesus is pretty much saying, And again, I think this made intuitive sense to his audience when he was talking about this, and it makes intuitive sense to us. If you know what you're supposed to do and you don't do it, you're going to be beaten with many blows. Your punishment is going to be higher than those who fail to do what God wants you to do, and you don't do it because you just didn't know that's what you're supposed to do. And The punishment, the blows that he emphasizes, at least in this particular case with this manager who is so abusive, is so antithetical to God's will, uh, is that he will be cut to pieces and assign a place with the unbelievers, which again is another way of, of Jesus saying multiple times in other parables, he talks about people being thrown out to the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Right? They will be rejected by God. Basically, they, they are not saved. They will not be in heaven. They will go to hell. That's basically what Jesus is saying is, there is a point where even if you're a believer, that you, if you do not do the will of God, if it gets to the point where you are abusing, where you are beating other people, where you are taking God's resources and being indulgent for yourself, if you do that enough, there is a point where you will be thrown out, that you will go to hell. And Jesus talks about this in multiple places, this idea of proportionate punishment and reward. For example, Matthew 25 talks about the parable of the talents, right? People are given different amounts of money in order to, for them to invest God's money in different ways. He also talks about... Um, that there's a lot of people that consider themselves to be Christians that are not going to end up in heaven. Not only in this passage here, but in other places throughout Scripture where Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father. A sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, right? How are people separated? It isn't separated based off of what they say they believe. It's based off of whether or not they take care of one another. And finally, Matthew 18, where he warns that if you do not forgive, 
people who wrong you seven times 70, then you will not be forgiven by God. I am astounded by the number of Christians who don't know that unforgiveness is not an option. If you are a follower of Christ, you are signing up to forgive 70 times 7. And I continually run into Christians who actually think it's an option to not forgive. And so if you believe that, it's too late for you because I'm giving you the knowledge this morning (laughs) that you have to forgive. And I think this idea of sort of um, proportional punishment is not talked a lot about, at least in the American church, for, for a number of reasons. One of them being, I think we've reacted to sort of the hellfire and brimstone preaching that was happening more in the 50s and 60s in early America, that we've, we've moved away from that and wanted to be the church of love and acceptance. And, and I like that. I like that we emphasize the grace and the love of Christ. I think that should always be what we lead with. But we've shot, I think, too far away in pretty much saying, you are going to be held accountable. There is consequences for sin. There is punishment. Yes, you are under the grace of God. Yes, Christ died for your sins so that we don't have to suffer the punishment that, is duly, uh, that we duly deserve. But there are consequences for sin, not only in the heavenly realms, but also here on earth. And we know that, right? There's consequence. When we choose to sin, we suffer the consequences of that here on earth. But it also has uh, consequences in heaven as well. I'm not going to get into sort of what exactly those consequences are or what punishment looks like right now, but I'm going to talk a little bit more about why I think we as the American church have difficulty talking about punishment and sin as well as sort of the mindset that keeps us from really continuing to strive towards bringing God's will here on earth. I I think there's a paradigm that we have that really limits our understanding of what God means and is serious about in terms of sin and and the consequences of sin. So, here, here, we're going to take a little bit of a break from the passage and talk, uh, give a cultural lesson. So this is a paradigm that is present, at least here in America, called the bounded set. And I'm going to compare that to the centered set. So this is a circumstance here. In this graphic, you see that there's a hard line, a circle. And let's say that the people inside of that circle are Christians. The dots outside represent non-Christians. And this is called a bounded set because... We have a paradigm of those who are in the circle and those who are out. It's sort of black and white. There's no in-between. There's no straddling the line. You're either in or you're out. And for uh, uh, a lot of churches, we view Christian and non-Christian that way. You're either a Christian or you're not a Christian. And, and what marks that? What makes that mark? Uh, I know for me, um, it was the Lord, the, the sinner's prayer, right? How you become a Christian, how you go from the out in was the sinner's prayer, as well as baptism. So, you know, uh, Jeremy was talking about the purpose of baptism was the commitment being made, public commitment to Christ, which is significant. But uh, for me, when I became a Christian as a 16-year-old through the ministry of Young Life, I prayed the prayer, which was pretty much confessing that I'm a sinner that I can't do anything about. I need Jesus, so I proclaim Jesus as my Lord and Savior. 
right? And that, that's what ushers in the Holy Spirit and my new relationship with Christ. Uh, so, and and that's, that was great. I mean, just like we celebrate this morning, the baptisms, you know, that, that was glorious. My life was anew. I changed my life around. All kinds of things happened at that moment. But I think the way that this paradigm, as helpful as it can be and should be used in our church, there's ways that it's harmful or not complete. Because one of the things that is absent from that prayer is any commitment to loving my neighbor, right? There's no profession of, as I accept Jesus into my life, I am now responsible for my brothers and sisters around me. I am now signing up to love people the way Jesus loves me. There's no commitment to that. Now, that's implicit, that's implied, We, we do that, you know, we hear about that later, but I think that's important. And, and when I lead people to Christ, I actually have them, I include that in their sinner's prayer, is that their commitment to the community, the body of Christ, the church of God, but the ministry to the world. And another way uh, to think about this is, um, tell me, when do you think Peter got into the circle? When did he become a Christian? When you look at the Gospels, his disciple, right? When, when was his moment of becoming a Christian? Was it when he was baptized? Well, interesting thing is, is we don't, there's no narrative of his baptism. I mean, we, we think he was baptized, but it's not in the Gospels. Um, was it when he left his profession, when he left his nets and followed Jesus? Was that when he became a Christian? Was it when he and a couple other disciples declared Jesus as Messiah during his ministry? Or maybe it was after the resurrection in the Gospel of John where Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? To counteract the fact that he denied Jesus three times. Was that when he became a Christian? Or or maybe it was the book of Acts when Paul confronts him for his racism of pulling away from the Gentiles because of what the Jews thought. And Peter repents of that. Was that when he became... See, we don't know. I can't tell you when he became... Because the sinner's prayer is not in the Bible. We made that up so that we could distinguish who is in and who is out. And again, like I said, categorization is is a good thing. There's good things about that. So I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. But it is limiting because there's a way that when we have a bounded set mentality, the only thing that's important is getting people through the door, becoming a Christian, praying the sinner's prayer, right? After that, you're home free. You're, you're, gonna, you're either going to heaven or you're going to hell. And what, what makes you go into heaven is praying that prayer. And then there's no responsibility for following Jesus after that. It, it's like if, you know, Angela, my wife, if she came to me and said, Bum, I feel like, you know, you don't want to be with me. You don't talk to me. We don't spend any time together. You know, we don't, you know, I I just don't feel like we're in a good marriage. And I said to her, well, what are you talking about? Here's our marriage certificate, right? I married you. And, And that's, 
that she should be happy about that, right? That in the same way, we can't go to Jesus. We can't go to see Jesus and, and say, well, you know, I prayed the prayer. I, I got baptized, you know? And Jesus would ha- rightly say, no, go away from me, you evildoer. I do not know you because we didn't follow through. And baptism, the sinner's prayer, it is significant. It's important. It's a marker. Just like the marriage ceremony, it's a marker. And the Holy Spirit moves in a powerful way. Um, But you all know it's just the beginning. (laughs) It's just the profession of I'm going to give my life and work as hard as I can to please my Father in heaven. Right? That's what we're saying. So a paradigm that I find more helpful is called the centered set. And this is more of an Eastern way of thinking. And this is where my Asian background helps me a little bit. We're not as concerned about the hard line. What we're concerned about is, are people moving towards Jesus? Is the path of their life, the projection of their life towards Jesus? Or is it away from Jesus? And I'm not so concerned whether or not you call yourself a Christian. Because all of us are either moving towards Jesus or we're moving away. And at what point you become a Christian, I'm not so worried about that. Uh, I remember when I was doing campus ministry, um, there was a guy who got involved in our ministry, wasn't a Christian or anything like that. And for three years, he was the most faithful attender of all of our events and actually did evangelism with us and was not still said he wasn't a Christian, right? That's crazy. Um, But I would say he was a better follower, was moving forward closer to Jesus than many of the people who were professing they were Christians, right? So in a lot of ways, I look at the actions of people to determine where are they in terms of faith. And in terms of our evangelism, I think it helps open up how we view people We're not so concerned about making sure they pray the prayer. We're focused on where is the trajectory? Where is the movement that they're going? And I like hanging out with people who are moving towards Jesus, even if they're not in the church, even if they're not professed believers, right? And there's a lot of them out there. There's so many people who are moving towards Jesus and they might not even know it, right? How do I know? Because they're doing the will of God, Anytime, anytime, especially non-Christians, if they are actively doing the will of God, you need to encourage that. You need to affirm that. You need to say, do you know that God is pleased with what you're doing? And so we need to have the same mindset that I think Jesus has and not, not have these really hard lines that sometimes alienates people, especially out of the church. So getting back to the passage, um, I want to ask this question because verse 48, right, says, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded, and from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. So, So what have you been given? What have you been entrusted with? So next slide here. Three things primarily. Grace, obviously, is the number one thing that you've been given. Grace. And I always worry when I'm preaching more on like punishment passages that talk about punishment. I know what happens is those of you 
who are worried about your salvation or worried about whether or not uh, you're being thrown out to unbelievers usually are the ones that don't need to worry about it, right? If you're concerned, and I don't want us to be paranoid in our relationship with Christ, because there are. There's folks who are like, see God as this judge who is just waiting to punish you. And, and I just want to say that that is not the God that we serve. The God we serve loves us. Um, and so the grace that God has is the biggest gift that we have. And he's given that to us not only so that we can enjoy relationship with God, but so that we can do that with each other, so that we can practice grace with each other. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that later. The second thing that we've been given and entrusted is purpose. So it isn't only relationship with God, but he's also given us the most important purpose in our lives, which is to bring God's will here on earth, to bring God's kingdom. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, what are we saying? We want God's will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I don't think it's a great plan on God's part to involve us in his plan for redemption here on earth. He did a pretty good job when Jesus was here on earth, right? But for whatever reason, he has decided to use broken people, us as ambassadors, to reflect Jesus to the rest of the world. I think that's a foolish decision, but hey, that's God's prerogative, and he's called us to do that. But that's, that's the purpose. That's why we are here on earth, is to usher in, in a broken world, opportunities for healing, for grace, for love. And then obviously, the final thing is resources, right? God has given us resources, not just money, but more importantly, I think, is time. Time, for many of us, is more valuable than money. Uh, Our energy, our passions, all of those things, God has given to us to manage his gifts. And so we use those resources to serve and help other people. So if those are the things that God has entrusted or given to us, what is God, as the scripture says here, what is he demanding from us or asking of us? What does he want? And I'm going to keep it simple here. I think, I think the thing he's asking from us is to take care of others. I really think it's that simple. I mean, using scriptural language, it's love your neighbor as yourself, right? That, that's what it is. And then it's important to remember, love not defined by sort of Hallmark and Valentine's Day kind of love. It's scriptural love defined by Jesus. And so how did Jesus show his love? Right? Did he show, you know, is Jesus impressed when you love your caring mother? Is he impressed by that? Does he write that in his journal at night? Right? Uh, Jeremy loved his mom today. Good job. No, he's not impressed. He is not impressed by that. He is, imp- <laughs> he is impressed when you love your enemy. Jesus says over and over again, what gets my attention, what gets me excited is when you do what my son did on the cross is to go to be wrongly accused, to be misunderstood, to lay down your life for your enemy. That's what impresses God. And so that's what he's asking us to do. So when he says love your neighbor, he really means love your enemy. 
And unfortunately, this past year, uh, with COVID and with COVID restrictions, you know, uh, I, I just became more conscious of social media stuff, which I don't normally engage in. Uh, but because of um, uh, social isolation and things like that, um, I sort of got a firsthand look at, and, and, this, and this broke my heart at how Christians come across online. Uh, with all the craziness that happened with COVID, I was just heartbroken with the representation of Jesus online. It did not make our jobs any easier in terms of evangelism. Because now, the first step of evangelism to a non-Christian is to apologize for the church and how we have misrepresented the character of Christ. And so I know, I know here at Rooftop, you guys are sensitive to that, you know that, but I'm just saying that if you have friends, family members who think they are representing Christ online through vitriol, through anger, through judgment, point them to this passage or remind them of the cross and what Jesus did on the cross, right? Can you imagine Jesus being accused the same way that he was before he went to the cross, right? Jesus even his interaction with Pilate, if all of that happened on Facebook, just imagine that. I think Jesus would have been quiet, like he was before his accusers. And many of us, I think, need to be more quiet online. That's just a small example. There's just a lot of others, right? Forgive, um, our purpose, continue to evangelize, to disciple, resources, serve the poor. I know that uh, Rooftop does a good job with this, addressing needs of the community. But make sure that those are the things that you're doing. Not because that gets you into heaven, uh, but because you want to do the will of God. Because that's, you know you're pleasing God. And what I love, right, counter to uh, or balancing sort of that image of us moving towards Christ. There's also equal amounts of scripture that when we do move away, when we move away from Christ, when we don't do the right thing and love our neighbor, parable of the lost sheep, what does Jesus do? Does he, does he like write people off like we're tempted to do, right? writing people off who have a different political opinion than we do? What does Jesus do? He chases after us. You're saying, hey, bum, you're going the wrong way. Turn around. And sometimes, yes, I receive punishment. But what does scripture say? God disciplines those he loves, and I appreciate that. So that is the invitation that God has for us. So we're going to pray before we enter into uh, musical worship again, but we're going to have a moment of silence where I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit to sort of gently place his finger in an area of your life where you might not be being a faithful manager, where you might be tempted rather than loving and caring and dying to self for another that you're tempted to withhold uh, from someone else the love that they, no, not deserve. We, none of us deserve love from each other, but God calls us to do, and that's how he defines love. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you for scripture. We thank you for the truth and how it sets us free. But right now, we we just want to not just be hearers of your word, but we want to be doers. And so 
we just want to take a moment of silence and just pray and by your Holy Spirit, is there an area, is there a relationship, is there a person in my life where I have failed to love the way you want me to love? Is there someone where I have responded or returned hate for hate? So Holy Spirit, just point that out for us, Lord. this morning, even as we celebrate uh, Abigail and Elijah's baptism, it reminds us of our baptism and it reminds us of what you did on the cross and the love that you showed us. Lord, we come to you again needing again spiritual cleansing in your waters of truth and grace so that we can rise up again renewed and committing to loving our neighbor. So help us. We confess we don't have the power nor the ability to do that. But praise be to God, your Holy Spirit is in us and enables us to do the impossible. And Lord Jesus, I just pray right now for those of us here in this room that has been so hurt that the concept of forgiveness, the concept of even engaging in conversation again, just feels impossible. I just want to pray for those folks that, Lord, you are patient, you are kind, you are the healer, that you're going to provide the strength that they need, the community that they need to be able to follow you into this difficult place. Lord, I just ask that they would be protected in your love, feel safe in your love in order to take that step that they know they need to do but feel like they don't have any power to do it. So Jesus, I just pray for that group right now and ask for your encouragement. And I also pray for Rooftop, just pray for everyone here that we would be good ambassadors, that we would be good evangelists, good disciples that reflect who you are. In your son's name we pray, amen.